Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Today we are going to be in the Torah reading of Shemeni, meaning 8th, and it covers uh, basically Leviticus chapters 9 through 11. Some core principles before we go on is that, you know, watch out for the things that heaven says makes one fit and unfit to enter the kingdom of God. Now you might say, okay, well, didn't we talk about uh, entering toward the presence when we were at the beginning of Vayikra or Leviticus? Well, yes, but the principle of what is talking about entering toward the presence, and we got to it in our last Torah discussion of looking at what the prophets say in, you could say, the heart of the matter of all the offerings, and what is it that you are bringing? You're bringing yourself closer to the presence. So, thus, the moving toward the presence of God, moving toward the presence of God in the, t- in the tabernacle is a part of your whole life walk of walking toward the kingdom of God because that is where God is looking to deliver us, to take us from where we were before. So, basically, we're looking on the things that are in our control. So, if you think about the things that are outside of our control, and we'll be going through a lot of that as we go through Leviticus, the things that are specific to um, male or female, the things that are specific to a type of office, the things that are specific to your, your family, if someone dies within your family. These are things that are outside of your control. But like you saw in Leviticus chapter 11, it reinforced as it's going through the end, don't go out looking for the things that are, quote, detestable, unquote. You know, don't go looking, jumping into those things. You might encounter them. Like we mentioned incident uh, last week where, you know, someone just happens to come by your house and creates a situation like this. But you don't go out looking for those particular situations. So you do focus on what is in your control. And that's actually the underlying thing. We've talked about this in years past, what the underlying teaching of Mark chapter 7 and Acts chapter 10 that relate to this particular topic that you see in um, in Leviticus chapter 11. But the under, underlying point of all of this with the tabernacle is that heaven is taking all of humanity from bondage to rest, from bondage to rest. And bondage specifically is bondage, a way of life that is leading you toward death, toward a ultimate destination that is really not going anywhere. You know, the, the old saying from the credit card, you know, it's everywhere you, you're going to be. Well, this way of bondage is everywhere where it is you don't want to be because that point is not going to last. You see that in the book of Revelation where it talks about the second death where you have 
the grave is thrown into the lake of fire. So that way that leads to death, that realm of death, the things that are decaying toward death, that is ultimately going to end. That is not going to be the way of the things of the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, Deborah. Um, I did hear it said that um, that we um, dying in this state is a blessing because if we did not die, we would stay in the sinful state if we were to live etern- eternally. So death, God did do us a, a service by you know, making an end date to this, this situation. So death, in a way, is good. What's not good about the second death, however, but <laughs> yeah. that you don't want. You know, if you wake up in the second, yeah, you, after the thousand-year reign, that's all I ever think about. But so do you agree that God did us, a, a, you know, a favor by uh, having an expiration date on this? Yeah, well, you, you see what's described in the world um, before the flood where it talks about the people's thoughts were only evil continually, only headed toward violence, only violence and evil continually. Well, you know, you think about the damage that people can do in just a few decades. Well, just imagine a few centuries of the damage that people can do if they divert away from the path of God. Then they (laughs) have a lot of ways to invent new ways of going into evil. So, yes, Alex. And as usual, uh, the swarming, swarming thing swarming. Yes. Uh, was mentioned a few times toward mm-hmm. the end of 11. Now, earlier, it's crickets, good, grasshoppers, and the ones that swarm, those grasshoppers, mm-hmm. locusts, rather. Um, okay. But then he kept going. As, and then, I, of course, I want to read a little more into it, which is, okay, I've heard about the ones that certain animals, a lot of animals, will clean themselves in a nasty way, uh, and especially maybe a rabbit or some of those that almost make the grade, but because of something to do with the digestion. Mm. So, I mean, I know it's probably reading too much into it, why these are unclean and why those. Well, actually, uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of the things. I, I come from a tradition that, that tried to extremely precisely parse all of that, but the truth is that it is arbitrary. It is arbitrary. And there are carve-outs, just as you mentioned, the swarming things. But these certain swarming things are not um, considered detestable. Now, the reason why it is arbitrary is because when you think about, and that's a whole part of this discussion here today, of clean and unclean, what is Okay, just simply put, what is the path of, quote, salvation, unquote? Yeshua's sacrifice. Thus, in context for us, it is arbitrary. We had nothing to do with that. So, that is the whole point between clean and unclean, and the whole point underlying Acts chapter 10. Because... Thus, you know, people will try to say, well, God just lowered, he just made no distinction at all between anybody. No, what you saw is quite the opposite, that God took those that were considered common before and lifted them up. And then over the next two chapters, 
then Peter explains repeatedly about this situation and this encounter with the, the vision that he had and then the encounter with Cornelius. And that what is the thing that he keeps telling over and over and over again about what this distinction is? He says, hey, they received the Spirit of God just like we did. That was the arbitrary grace the arbitrary mercy of God. That was arbitrary. But what did that do for those who received it of the goyim, of the Gentiles? What did that do? It made them clean, lifted them up from being common, being just like everybody else, to being clean. That, like we were talking about from the beginning part of Vayikor, the beginning part of Leviticus, that's what happens. We are from the outside of the tabernacle and we head toward the presence of God. But in the process, we come in the door, we have to go by the altar. And then the priesthood, the servants of God, take us transformed toward the presence of God. But we don't just waltz right in. In fact, that's what the account of Leviticus chapter 10 is all about. You don't just go in the way you think you should, in a foreign or a strange way. You don't present a fire. You don't present something in your approach toward God, which is different from the way in. So just like you see in the clean and the unclean, that is another call v'chomer, or a light and heavy arguments from Bible. The light is the clean and the unclean we see in Leviticus 11. You, this part is okay. This part is not. This is fit. That's not fit. This is clean. This is unclean. These are the buckets. You're like, well, why? They are. And the maker of heaven and earth said, this and not this. So, thus, we could say, well, when we get into the kingdom of God, well, how did that guy get in? The sovereign choice of God to extend that mercy in. So that is one of the underlying fundamental lessons of what we just looked at here in Leviticus chapter 11, that there is a distinction, make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, the fit and the unfit to approach. Yes, Larry. Found out recently, and that I had always missed. And I think everybody else misses when they, when they say, "Well, it means everything is we can eat whatever we want." <laughs> yes. As he says in um, in in Acts ten fifteen, and the voice came to him a second time and says, "What God has made clean, do not call common." Yeah. And he didn't say he was making any of those animals clean for him to eat. He just said, right. "Eat." Yep. And he, he, I think he, I think it was a test. He said, no, I won't do that because they're unclean. He goes, okay, yeah, well, then I want you to go to this guy. So that's what we, I think people miss that. It specifically mentions in Acts chapter 10, while he's sitting there thinking about what this vision meant, ding dong, who shows up on his door? So that is one of the key lessons that he kept explaining to various groups of people first to Cornelius and his, his uh, household, 
and then finally to the um, the elders to explain what it is that happened and what the importance part of it. Yes, Tammy. Because God was trying to unteach Peter something that he had learned from the tradition of the elders is not in the Torah. There's nothing in the Torah that says that a Jewish person cannot go into a Gentile's house under the roof and, you know, talk to them and have a meal with them. Nothing. But yet by the first century, you see that in the trial of Yeshua, when Yeshua was brought to Pilate, right. they would not go into his office or his palace yep. because they would be unclean. There's nothing in Torah that says you can't walk into a Gentile's house on the eve of Passover and, you know, have a conversation. But by then they had made this man-made rule of theirs that, oh, I can't go into Pilate's, you know, office or whatever, otherwise I'll be unclean and can't eat the Passover Seder. There's nothing in Torah that says that. But Peter and the apostles probably had picked up that tradition, and so God had to do something to break through to them that they learned that the, what was it, the phrase you see, like in the prophets, you know, our fathers had taught us lies. Yeah, correct. Now, it's, it's one of those things that you might say, we, we've all gotten used to cleanliness protocols. If, if you hear the, the word protocol again, after the past two years, you probably want to uh, uh, start um retching up something but the point of the cleanliness protocols is what if you are encountering something that could be a contagion or make you sick these are the steps that you need to go to to protect yourself supposedly you can debate that one way or the other but these are the ways that are supposed to protect you from the contagion so what tammy's talking about is the cleanliness protocols that developed over probably several hundred years by that point. Because one of the things you see in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, especially, because these are the folk that are doing the return from the exiles, return from Babylon specifically, coming back to hit the reset button on Israel after the timeout that God had given Israel in Babylon. And one of the things you see that's developed out of that is you start seeing some things about, well, about the foreign marriages that they had had and trying to unravel some of these other things. And then you see a few hundred years later, a couple hundred years later, the uh, Maccabean era that shows up. And then you have another crisis of assimilation of where you're, you're saying, okay, you either get rid of your... Um, instructions that God has given you and then follow after a pagan practice or you will die and then your children will die in the process. After that experience, you saw a hypervigilance toward the separation. So what we call Pharisees, that's the Greek uh, transliteration of parashim, meaning the separated ones or the ones who keep themselves separate. So parashim that came from a very, very good principle that was learned very, very well from the exiles is that we did not keep ourselves separate. And as we go through and we see in uh, the instructions in Exodus and we've gone in through Leviticus and we'll see some more of those as we get into our next few uh, Torah portions. And then when we get into Numbers and then Deuteronomy, you'll see that there is these instructions about, okay, yeah, when you enter the land, you do not adopt the practices. You make sure that you make a separation between what you're doing and what is going on around you. You don't bring those things in. Don't pick and choose. Hey, that 
religious practice looks pretty cool. Let's see if we can just bolt that on to the worship of God. You know, and you see that archaeologically that that exactly thing happened. Uh, where you see in Israel, they've we talked about it before, they've dug up these little figurines that show the practice of Baal worship and Asherah worship were bolted on to the worship of the creator of heaven and earth. Even, you know, importing his name and stamping it right onto these figurines. So there was the instructions, hey, don't do that. So after the exiles to Babylon, that lesson, that lesson was learned pretty well, is that, hey, don't do that. Don't bolt on uh, other practices on. So the problem was, is the lesson was learned, you could say, maybe too well in the sense that you have now said other people are toxic and other people who we think are the the other are really toxic and you just you don't even associate it with them one iota now you know from your own experience that's one of the principles that you get from your parents that are saying you know show me who your friends are and i'll tell you who you are um i myself know that i thought that was preposterous and i thought that i could keep the wall of separation up there but the problem is is that the more you're around other people that are quite different lifestyle and quite different morals than you are the gravitational pull downhill is extremely strong and you may not even realize how far you've slid down the slope toward immorality in the process because why you're surrounding yourself with people who do not have that same kind of compass, that direction, that moral direction that you do. So what happens, you know, they, you hear from pilots when they talk about going on instrument training. And one of the things that is part of pilots' instrument training is, you know, they say you go under the hood where they basically put this hood over you and all you can see are your instruments. You're not looking outside the cockpit one, one bit. So they don't, you don't know where you are. So you have to trust your instruments to get you to the place where you need to go and to even know what your orientation is. <laughs> the, uh, a friend of mine in college was an was a, um, aviation major, and he said that they would always do this thing where you take you up and the, the pilot would like, you know, just go in the dives and this and that and the other and say, okay, take over under, under instruments only. And you have to figure out where you are, what orientation you're at, whether you're up, down, you know, what direction you are, and then fix it quickly. And the thing was, you know, trust your instruments. So with us, with morality here, the Torah is like our instruments. And we have to be very careful of trying to fly in the you know visual flight rules we're just kind of looking out seeing how the culture is around us and kind of orientating ourselves to that when our instruments are saying hey you're in a bank and you're headed toward the ground at very high speed <laughs> you know pull up <laughs> level out but uh no you've taken your eyes off the instruments you've taken yourself your vision off of god's instructions uh, Pamela, you have your hand up. Okay, my, my my question was 
not really a question, but the comment was about the Valley of Tophet. They were so wrong that they were sacrificing their children in the yes. Valley of Tophet. And uh, this was a teaching by Nehemia Gordon um, that it was where they beat drums for, during the sacrifice of children so that their cries could not be, um, so they could gr- drown out the cries of the sacrificed children. And the Jews were doing that. So that's one of those uh, influences of paganism. Yeah, uh, yeah, it brings up a very interesting point that, you know, there were some of the the practices like that where you have to dull your senses or dull your your <laughs> natural or you should say your correct response to that kind of a completely abhorrent behavior. And you see it in society today where people will come up with all kinds of we call it rationalizations for doing things that are completely irrational and you could say just truly horrific. They'll just come up with then some explanation to justify why they're doing it. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. So, one of the things that we, we look at in this particular uh, passage is where it actually fits into the realm of Vayikra. And that is, it's gone through two uh, readings here of the instructions for the karbonot, the offerings, those things that approach and the instructions were for the people and then also for the priesthood and the, uh, the five different uh, classifications of these offerings that are mentioned uh, in these particular passages. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. And then the summary of it, well, what then does it all mean? And these are the, the offerings that they were supposed to be bringing. Now, where we're at here in this particular passage is the, okay, you've heard what to do. Now it's time to actually do it. And it's very similar to where we are in life. You may hear a lot of stuff about how you're supposed to do something, but what is the actual um, <laughs> showing of how this actually works is, okay, you put this into action. And so you see that with Moshe, he is the one who moves this forward from being something, the theoretical, the instructional, the informational, to the, okay, now this is actually moving into implementation. And that's why it's uh, quite um, appropriate that you have this idea of a consecration, this putting into action for all believers, you know, yes, we our role is not to serve specifically bringing these specific offerings in this specific place of the tabernacle or the temple, but when we go into service as a part of the dwelling place of God in the world, we take the things that we have learned and then we put them into action. We start saying, okay, this is no longer the things that you just have rattling in your skull, these are the things that are now coming into the real world around you. So before, they were just hearing Moshe relate this, that he was uh, related to him from the Lord as to what they were supposed to do. Now you see him actually going forward with some of these offerings to put them into action. So in the context of where this fits into 
uh, Vayikra, or the whole book of Leviticus, this particular section ends with these instructions on uncleanness, and that is going to extend all the way through chapter 15. And we get into, in our next reading there, about childbirth and about this <laughs> the tetzetzerat, or the, what we call the uh, leprosy, this skin disorder, a very interesting skin disorder that's among people and among places or houses, articles. Of, and then you also have the instruction of holy living, which goes from chapter 16 all the way through chapter 25. And the interesting part of that is it kicks off with the Day of Atonement. So the instructions of the Day of Atonement are about um, how to live holy, which gets into some of our, um, our vital vocabulary that are really instructional for us as we go through Vaikra Leviticus. First off, we talked about already, Karban, which is what's translated as offering or gift. You have Kodesh, which is translated holy. You have the uh, Tahor, which is translated as clean. And you have Tameh, which is cl- translated as unclean. As we talked about when we started Vaikra off, these can be roughly kind of interpreted as the carbon is the thing that approaches. That's literally what it's saying. It is what approaches. Now, what is it approaching? In the context of Vaikra, it is approaching toward the, the dwelling place of God. And Kodesh, so you are made Kodesh or you're made holy, meaning you are set apart. Well, set apart for what? So that's one of the key things that we see here about making a distinction between the things that are holy and the things that are not holy. Well, the things that are set apart for what? You just set something apart and do what with it? If it's for service then it's supposed to be put into action. Just like we were talking about before, the instructions to the priesthood, it's like, if this was just an informational thing, so it just, uh, you know, Moshe was yakking for the first six chapters, yeah, da 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 Okay, and then what do you do with that? Okay, that was, that was interesting. Maybe you can do some flow charts and nice pictures and stuff, but what, what does it actually mean about anything? Well, it doesn't really until you actually put those things into action. So we, as talked about a holy people, we set apart to do what? Why are you set apart? Just to be set apart? It goes back to our discussion earlier about one of the, the challenges of the Purushim model, those who the set apart ones. Okay, you realize there is a problem with being too intertangled with the culture around you. Okay, well, you set yourself apart. Well, do you know why? Why you're set apart? Is it just so, it's like, okay, we're, we're having a nice little confab over here while the rest of the, everything just goes up in flames. You know, and we just either put our hands out and warm ourselves or hold out some marshmallows and toast them just as everything else goes up in flames. Is that what we're set apart to do? To just watch the world burn? Have a nice vantage from it? 
Yes, Rose. Our, I think our Heavenly Father is pretty clear on that. You know, he said that uh, we are to become holy because he is holy. Yes. So it's not that we're set apart of, to get out of the world. It's we're set apart so we can get close to him because we can't come to him unless we're clean. And, and what, is, what is heaven doing? Cleaning us up. There you go. So that's a very interesting thing. So the set apart one is separate from the ways of the world around us. But what is the set apart one doing? Yes, we have a comment back there. I think we're set apart um, because of our actions. And for us to reflect our actions of what we're doing on the other ones that we're set apart from. Right. To possibly bring them in, make them curious to see why we're not eating this kind of meat, why we're doing this mm. worshiping and things. Maybe that's possibly why we're set apart also. Well, it's, it's exactly what Messiah said there in uh, Matthew chapter 5, when he's, he's talking about, so they see your good works and do what? Give you a gold star? Give you a trophy? Give you an attaboy? Oh, that's great. No. So they see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven with the goal of doing what? Bringing them along. So there you go. And that's what you see with the whole Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. You see this picture of, the, okay, you want, there is a way that is different from the way of the world. You should be going in a way that's different from the way of the world. But just like the one who set apart this way that's different from the way of the world is now going back to the world to bring that world out to the way that leads to life. So thus you, when you have been brought out of the ways of the world, thus then you do what your master did. You do what the Holy One does, who goes back to help others come out. And that's one of the warnings that Apostle Paul brings out in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It's like, that's a great goal. But watch yourself. Because if you don't be careful, you could be like ancient Israel was. And like a lot of people. Is that if you don't watch yourself, when you go back in to help people, um, they could take you down. I remember when I was going for uh, the uh, life-saving life merit badge, uh, when I was at scout camp, one of the first things they tell you is when you go up and you jump in the water to go help somebody, you know, you go either around them and if they come up to you, you do what? And they showed you all kinds of things, stiff arm them, kick them, whatever. And it seems cruel, but they're like, if you let them take you down, who's going to help them? You know, you're going to need saving too. You're going to need someone to save you and the person you're saving. So... That is why you have this important instruction of why having the parash or the separation is extremely important, but that is for a purpose, to help. Because if you you think of firefighters, if you run as a firefighter into a burning building without your protective gear, your helmet, no breathing apparatus or anything, what's going to (laughs) happen? You're a victim. You're going to, someone's going to have to go save you. Yes. I was going to say that that's the reason why when he marks us, at the, whenever he does that, on the forehead and on our wrists, yes. because that's our actions. What you're actually doing brain, in the we world. we got to do something about it. Correct. 
Yes. So it's not just something that's happening up in your brain, but it's happening in your brain, then going out into the world around you. Yeah. So it's not just all head knowledge. So thus, when you see this, um, we're going to be heading into our cycle of the holy days, and when we get to the one at the the end of the specific uh, appointed times in the year in the seventh month, the Shemini Atzeret, we talked about that earlier, the bookend of Sukkot or Feast of Tabernacles. Shemini, it's talked about on the eighth day for this consecration. One of the things that you see in this when it talks about that they're consecrated on the eighth day. Now, eight in Hebrew uh, comes from, from Shemone, and that just means from a uh, root verb of shaman, which means to have some fullness, to reach its plentifulness, that it has reached the top and is now going over. So when you see that in uh, Shava or uh, seven, seven is coming up to its fullness. You, you see like, why is Shava for an oath? is because what? You promise something and then you forget about it? No, you promise something and you do it. You bring it to completion. So when you have fulfilled what you promised to do, you have fulfilled your oath. You have taken it from zero up to seven and filled it up so it's full. But shamane is you bring it up to full and then flow over the top of it. So thus you see the pictures that uh, come throughout Scripture of Shemone and Shemini for eighth is something that's communicating you have reached its fullness and going beyond. And a couple of events that we see in Scripture about this, you see it with the eight people entering the ark and during the flood, they about, then they end up being the rebuilding of mankind. Yes. Uh, number eight, uh, it's with Yeshua. His name is eight eight eight. The value of, of the name Yeshua is eight eight eight. It's uh, it's <laughs> reaching its fullness. It's reaching its fullness. So three, the three value of fullness of it. But it's 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 an interesting. God used those numbers for a lot of reasons, and they're 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 not meaningless in their value and intent. And right. it, it's a it's a mathematical puzzle in some ways when you go through those routes. But they're, they're which which is it's a very interesting. Uh, you end up with a very interesting um, uh, Hebrew wordplay then, is that uh, to shuv or to save is then what? Bringing it, not just to the end of it, it's like, you know, bringing you almost out and then leaving you there. No, it brings you to the extent of where you were before and then beyond it, out. So it's kind of like what we do during Passover time with Dayenu, you know, it would have been enough. And one part of it is, well, it would have been, it's kind of like, you know, the God taking Israel up to the seashore and he's hey, good luck. <laughs> so, taking up to the, to the border, to the seven of Egypt and then saying, hey, good luck. No, the Lord took to, yeah, to the other side. So Build out the other side of the sea. So some other examples, we, that's where we get with circumcision on the eighth day. That is a, a very interesting connection there about the legacy of bringing a child now into its new beginning and new beginning, new commission in life. And 
you know, commissioning the, the parents in this as well. And thus, we've seen also in the discussion here today about the transition um, from the where the offerings were before to this new beginning of having this dwelling place of God with mankind also involves the eight and moving in like that. So, And we see that with some examples in our appointed times as we come through with Pesach. As you see there, there, there are cycles of seven, and then there's also a cycle of eight that's involved with that. You've got the seven days of unleavened bread, and Passover on the front end makes it eight days together. And you see the same thing show up with Shavuot or the Pentecost, seven sevens of days plus one. So you kind of take it to the extent and then spill it over the other side. And then with Sukkot and then with Shemini Yetzirah or the eighth day tacked on to the end of it, you've got the seven days of Sukkot and then the day on the other end of that uh, spills over into it. So what you see is this picture of um, taking from bondage where you were and the release of the bondage on Passover, taking you, delivering you out, and in the process, now taking you to a new beginning. And the bookend of that in the seventh month is all about what? Trumpets, pay attention. Atonement, we're going to cover it all over. Sins, transgressions, iniquities, that gets dealt with. And then Sukkot, pictured in with, okay, you had the Mishkan, the temple, the, the tabernacle, dwelling in the midst of the people, foretelling of a time when the dwelling place of God is going to be with mankind. And talks about, you see that with Revelation, where you see the city of God coming down out of heaven. And a part of that is that now the dwelling place of God is with mankind. So that is a key part of that. So it gets us back to, where we started this with all the questions we have about clean and unclean. So as we saw that the actual words themselves, uh, the tahor and the tameh, the tahor was what's translated as unclean and tameh, or other way around, clean and unclean. So tahor is clean, uh, tameh is unclean, or tahor is is fit to approach and tameh is unfit to approach and then you've got that other category in there that is about the detestable thing so you've got fit to approach unfit to approach and don't do this is basically where you get the the other category in there now it's very interesting that that in modern society for the past 150 years or so we've had this this clash of where you're teaching uh children teaching all society about this view that's been characterized as the survival of the fittest. Now you may think, oh, well, is this just a coincidence? Actually not. Because what is one of the arguments that you have about the dis- discussion of evolution, that things just came from nothing, then moved by itself on to something and what is the one uh the two key mechanisms that it comes about through 
once you start getting into the biological realm, one of which is what you call natural selection, or as some people calls it, the stuff happens law. And the other one is about mutations. So mutations, uh, you, you kind of gloss that over in biology class. That's just like we have underlying us, we're made up of just fantastic biological computer code. And there are things that happen where it's supposed to be one thing or one instruction and it get changed into something else. And there's all kinds of various, you know, radiation, chemicals, all various things can cause a mutation to happen. Now, you can be hopeful that it just does nothing, but oftentimes it will actually break things or make things just not do what they used to do. For example, like vitamin C absorption in your body. Sometimes that gets turned off for people and it doesn't get produced anymore. Then you've got a problem. Well, those two things about you know mutation and natural selection. So something breaks, and then natural selection is supposed to latch onto that and do something. So it means the teaching is that these are things that just happen on their own. So the survival of the fittest is that whatever is able to move itself on and reproduce to the next generation, will the gen just automatically move on to a least a good or perhaps a better level. But what is actual reality talking about? That things just don't happen, especially in the realm of people. It is actually something where you must make a decision. You must make a choice on which way you go. Because what happens in life if you just don't make conscious decisions on which way you're going to go? And the Apostle Yaakov actually talks about that in the first chapter of his letter, James chapter 1. Like a, like a ship that's tossed back and forth on the waves. You just Circumstances are just throwing you around. And then you just maybe hopefully end up in port. Well, the times I've been at, at sea, you know, in very, very heavy seas, um, you have to fight very, very, very hard to get to where you want to go because the, the, the waves are going to take you where the waves want to take you and the wind is going to take you where the wind is going to take you. So if you actually still want to get to where you're going, number one, you need to know where you're going. You also need to know why you're not able to get to where you're going, meaning wind and waves. So in life, that's one of the instructions in James chapter one is, if you're facing all kinds of trials of many kinds and you're like, why is this stuff happening to me all the time? Well, a part of that is that you are to uh, (laughs) rejoice when you face these trials because why? You are supposed to Learn, learn moral navigation in the process. That where it talks about asking God, asking for wisdom. Why does this stuff happening? Because as it moves through, you are supposed to build what perseverance, and then also at the end of it, you become complete. You come complete, lacking nothing. So 
And that same word there in Greek could also be translated and often is in some things become perfect. So it's the same word that's used elsewhere in the Gospels talking about be perfect just like your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, literally speaking is be complete. Or as you might say, be in shalom. You know, you are not like looking, scrounging around for something else. You are at peace. You are where you need to be. You're not trying to desperately search for where you need to be. So in life, like in James chapter 1 talks about, you look for wisdom in this. So the process of the survival of the fittest in the realm of reality is those who are fit, those who are, um, who are tahor, who are fit to approach, it just doesn't happen. Because you see what happens when you will just kind of let things happen in life. That's Leviticus chapter 10. You say, well, hey, that looks like a good way to approach God. Or, you know, I'm approaching God with uh, different intents in my heart. We read about that in Isaiah just uh, a couple of weeks ago. Isaiah 43 and 44. What happens if you are approaching God with these carbonote these offerings but your heart where your intentions are is somewhere else the lord says no don't bring that stuff <laughs> or let me help yes don't help don't uh, try to um help the lord uh try to come up with a different Ah, yes, yes, and, and he's uh, talking about the uh, Second Samuel passage where you know Isaiah is uh, tried to help out the ark because it seemed like it was falling over. Was all kinds of uh, lessons as to where <laughs> where that problem could come in. But one of the things that we can get out of this particular passage in clean and unclean is that life is something that we have to have a conscious approach to. If we just go through life and bouncing around between one problem to the next and not exploring why are these things coming, what am I supposed to do about them? It is like myself, you know, when I was uh, <laughs> foolishly at age 13 said, okay, here, take the helm. I got to go uh, fix the stuff in the back of the boat as we're in, you know, 20 to 30 foot seas in a 17 foot boat so i had to learn that you know the waves are going you know at a diagonal way kind of like in, in for example they were coming from like the northwest but i'm trying to make a course that's to the north well what does your course end up looking like it ends yes exactly right it, it is like a um moving back and forth because what you have to do is you have to take that wave head on because if you take it sideways you'll roll it the waves will just knock you right over and then you're toast you're dead so you have to take that wave head on but once you're over the wave you course correct on the backside and then you face the next wave head on and then you course correct as you fall over the top of the wave and that way 
you just keep going like like a fish that's kind of wagging its tail until you get to the course where you need to go. But that's where we are like in life is that with these things that come upon us, what do we do? When we are making this distinction with the things that are fit to approach toward God and not to not fit to approach toward God. What do we do when we get into those situations? Just like a wave coming at you. What do you do? Do you just let this situation roll you right over because I'm going to go this direction, like it or not? You don't actually respond to what's coming at you? Yes. You attack it head on. Yes, and when you, when you cross through that particular challenge, then you course correct back onto where you're, where you're headed. So that is one of the things that you'll see that the survival of the fittest actually in life is not just something that just happens. It is a conscious approach to the things in life. And that's what the lesson of clean and unclean is all about. It is about paying attention to the things that are leading you towards life, towards the realm of God, and the things that are leading away from the course of God. And one of the other lessons is, is that we as people are lifted up from where we used to be to where God wants us to be by his mercy. But... What direction do you actually take once you are lifted up? Do you just say, okay, I've been lifted up, and I'm going to just go right back on to the same course I wanted to go on? No. When you are lifted up, when you know, using these, these big words like, you know, when you are justified, made not guilty before God, then what do you do? Justified, then sanctified. Sanctified is the big word that just means stay kadosh. Stay kadosh. Stay set apart. You've been set apart. Now stay self set apart. And in that process, just as we were talking about with Romans 7 and 8 and how they play into these instructions that come through on this process of separation from the world that if we are just going through life with just you know you're going to bare your teeth and just get through it uh you could face a lot of problems because you may be like someone who is going over one wave and you don't see the next wave coming and that is what's part of the Spirit of God helps us with the words of God, the Spirit of God, which is why you see those things happen in, in the uh, scriptures. You know, the word of the Lord came to, the Spirit of the Lord came to. Those things work together, which is why with the New Covenant prophecies, both in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, so Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, they both talk about that you are given not only just a, a new heart, but also the Spirit of God put into you. So it's like 
just like is mentioned that Paul riffs on with this picture of new creation, it is like being back in the garden again, where God forms it, then breathes life into it. And then you become what? A nefesh chayim. You are something with wind that is actually alive, not just existing. So we in life don't want to be just people who merely exist. We want to be people that are set apart, who are kadosh for a purpose. And that's when when you talk with people about this whole clean, unclean thing, and as we've gone over in times past about Mark chapter 7, Acts chapter 10, the picture of, especially Acts chapter 10, is that a part of what the kingdom of heaven is doing is moving people from common to kadosh, from koine to kadosh, from ordinary to set apart for a purpose. And when we are set apart, to move on in that mission. So hopefully that can be something that we can take uh, to other people and help explain, you know, what is this stuff about, you know, fins, scales, um, split hooves. What, what is all of that about? Just like with the tabernacle, the things that are the spiritual realm are put down into physical representations or types, patterns, shadows for us to do what? To see and then to do. To see and to move on with it. Yes, Alex. Please get back to the humanity of it. You know, I, I think a lot of people, especially who are just caught up in New Testament, maybe believe we're just new people all of a sudden. I, I, I kind of defer to we're the same old person that needs to keep on looking to God because whether it's by our fallen nature, personality, early wiring, whatever. Uh, so to continue to make holy. Yeah. So, well, so pie in the sky, God's just made me great and I'm, everything's great. Yeah. Don't think it for a second. I can't think that for a second. Yeah. Well, God it, is there to help me. Open your heart. Pray. It gets, it gets back to the, the, the thing that um, Yeshua had a conversation with uh, Nicodemus there. It's recorded in uh, John chapter 3. And um, when you know, everybody quotes uh, John 3.16, but that whole running conversation there is the thing of how you as a teacher of Israel don't understand that you must be born again. Well, where does that come from in the Torah? What we read about in Numbers and, and Deuteronomy specifically, first generation post-Exodus, second generation post-Exodus. Israel was born again in the second generation. Because why? That first generation had to die off. So Israel was born again when Israel crossed over, crossed over into the land. So that is the process. So think about that as your second generation. You are a part of the second generation. You go into the land. Why didn't the first generation come with us? 
we don't want to do what the first generation did. So thus, we as people, as an individual, when we look back at our, quote, first generation that died in the wilderness, that old self that died in the wilderness, we need to know why that old self had to die in the wilderness, which is Paul's point there in Romans chapter 7. When you face up to the instructions of who God is, his character and such revealed in his law, then you realize, wow, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this? First generation has to die in the wilderness. Second generation then can go in, go into his rest and enter his rest. So, yes, Larry. Allergy. Um when you're born again, you're now your baby again. <laughs> yes. And you've got to get trained all over again, right? <laughs> yes. Which, one of the, the great instructions that Yeshua did about, you know, why you need to um, receive the kingdom of God like a child. You know, like Paul brings it out, you don't think in childish ways. You have to mature in your thinking, but be like a child in your <laughs> curiosity you're trusting and the one who's taking you. I mean, you think and you see the devastation that happens when things happen in life that destroy a child's trust in things. My goodness. Um, I know some people that have gone through so many uh, broken trusts through life that being able to trust is extremely difficult. And being able to trust God is extremely difficult because of that. So you really have to fight against your whole history. That old self that was full of just distrust has to die for you to be able then to trust again. Be able to trust the one who took you out. Which as we move on through numbers you'll see the examples of having to learn that the one that took them out of the house of bondage is worth trusting to keep moving and keep following keep following the cloud when it picks up and it moves and trusting that that cloud is taking us to the land of rest uh yes rose uh, you had a comment or a question i would just like to add that uh I, I, in my lifetime, I, I, I have been through some grievous things. And there's no way in hell, excuse me, <laughs> that I would ever want to go back that way. Mm -hmm. uh, God, has, God has given me so much and taught me so much. Uh, I, I trust him completely. I trust the word of God completely. Uh, there's just, there is nothing out there that would ever, ever interest me uh, to want to to go back that way. Yeah. God is good. God is awesome. God is wonderful. Uh, he's my savior and king. Uh, he's, he's everything to me. I can't even get out of bed in the morning until I've had a conversation with him and, and, uh, and help me on my way. Yeah. I, and I can't lay down at night to go to sleep until I've, I've thanked him for the blessings of that day and, and, uh, and the things that he's gotten me through. 
Yeah, and, that, and know, that, that could be the great I testimony. Imagine, you know, uh, when I first came, when I first came into the knowledge of God, I heard of people who walked with Him for thirty years and went away. And I've been now. This will be my fifty-fourth Passover coming up. I I can't imagine walking any other way but with Him. I doesn't even cross my mind. That just I I. I want to get closer and closer and closer to him. Uh, so yeah. it just it, it just blows my mind to think how can how can anybody want anything else? Yeah. Well, that's that's why that instruction from the apostle Yaakov there in James chapter one is so important. That when you come up against those times where you start losing trust, you come up. And you have to decide, well, what am I going to do about it? Ask for wisdom. Why is this happening? How can I grow? How can I persevere through this? Come what out. have I done now? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I need to straighten up. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. It has nothing to do with what God, you know, God didn't do. And it's like, where did I step out of line? Yes, yes. exactly. You know, and that's, when we take responsibility for our actions, not say, well, he made me do it, or, or the world has gone haywire, and I've done it. No. No, we, we have to own our own stuff, and it's, it's a relationship between me and him, not, not anything out there. Yeah, which is why the uh, practices that come up related to Yom Kippur each year, you know, well, p- people will, will characterize that and say, well, God can, can forgive me anytime. And yes, God can, can, uh, forgives us at any time. But the, you could say the reminder of having that memorial of the covering of sins, transgressions, and iniquities. And I never want to take advantage of that. Right. right? And, and the, I don't want to say, well, I can just go do this and he'll <laughs> forgive me. No, no, no. Yes. No, no. I, I think we need to have a, an opposite view of that. We, we want to love God so much. That we don't want to purposely do anything that would upset him or or our relationship with him. Yeah. And yes, I do step out of line, but I don't sit home and think about what can I do next because I know God's going to forgive me. Right. I don't think like that. I know there are unintentional sins that that I do dumb stuff once in a while, but I don't sit home thinking, well, he's going to forgive me. I'm just going to go do this, and I, you know, I'll get a free pass. That that's no, that don't work. Mm. That's not a relationship. Right. Great. Any other thoughts as we close out here? All right, Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us this time together, and we thank you for the great mercy you have upon us, for lifting us up and setting us apart, and for showing us the things that you want us to do. We thank you for covering over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities through the blood of your Son, Yeshua. We thank you in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Halal.info.